little clock starting here. It's appropriate for the morning anyway. <laughs> Jump right in character. I wonder what the feedback's coming from. Okay. Well, allow me to be one of the last to welcome you to Texas. Thank you. It's nice to have you here. What do you What do you think about uh, uh, the environment of working at St. Edwards University with students and professionals? It's very healthy. I I uh, I don't get to work with students often enough. I used to teach a lot of acting uh, for five years. I taught before uh, we started doing Star Trek, and uh, I miss it. I miss that kind of environment because. Uh, the one thing that you get in, in that kind of a situation that you don't get in a professional environment is, is, is people struggling to learn something. Professional environment, most people are, come to work to do the job, uh, as they do in any professional situation, and that's fine. They get the job done. But uh, in, a, in a, uh, a school or student situation, you do get people who are looking for some answers to questions that they're coming up against. And I find that exciting. I like to be involved in that where there's that kind of exploring going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How many students do you have in a cast? Oh, I think there must be about uh, a dozen or more, maybe 14 or so. Out of a possible, I mean, how many people are in the cast overall? Well, that's what I mean. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, I see what you mean. There, there are perhaps uh, three characters in the play that are not students. The rest are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The play itself is uh, by Albert Camus, who is uh, known to be an existentialist. What do you think of doing this play? Well, I'm very excited about it. I've, I've never played Camus before, and it's as close as I've ever come to playing classical theater. I'd call it kind of neoclassical. It's not, it's not pure classic in the sense that it's, it's not Shakespeare, it's not uh, Moliere or one of those people, but, uh, but it's written in a classic style, and the language is classic in form. Uh, Camus believed that, uh, for, well, for him, his taste was that kind of theater. Uh, uh, as opposed to uh, contemporary language or contemporary theater, he liked to have a, a sense of classic use of the language and a classic approach to the characters. So he chose, in this particular play, to write about a Roman emperor mm-hmm. uh, and write about it uh, in the style and, and language of, the, of what, what would be the, that classic period. And for me, it's, a, it's a, a very special challenge because the language is language that I've never played before, the, the style of the language, the way the words are put together, the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, of course it's a translation, Camille wrote it originally in French, but uh, I think we have a very good translation, and, and uh, the way it's been playing, I think the audiences are, are, really, uh, are really enjoying it, and getting a lot out of it, uh, and that's, that's important, obviously, you know, you do a play because you want people to come and, and have an interesting evening in the theater. And I think they're certainly having that. Mm. Yeah, from what I hear, it sounds like they they really are. Is it kind of a Camus plays a lot of times have a lot of things working in them that you you really can't follow unless you can read French and you can read it while you're while you're watching the play. Is this the case with this play? I really don't think so. Uh, I've I've been very pleased at the audience response and uh, during the course of the play, and I think that we're getting that response because most people do understand what's happening. Uh, let's put it this way, theater is not only words, and uh, that's demonstrated by the fact that you can watch, you can watch a couple of dancers in, a, in a, a mime piece or in a ballet piece and get a feeling of story and know what's going on even though a word isn't spoken. Uh, and in our case, we have the words to help the audience to understand what's going on. I don't think there's any, any real problem. I think it's fairly obvious that, with, that what's happening is a, is a bizarre comedy that's taking place, that, it, mm-hmm. that, uh, that has tragic overtones, and I think people understand it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Caligula, without giving away all the plot for someone who may want to come to see it, uh, 
does it deal with that um, Sisyphus model that uh, Camus is famous for having no. written or not? No, it deals with, uh, with a historical figure. Camus, uh, Caligula was a, a Roman emperor, mm -hmm. and uh, there are various stories about what happened to him. There's, there's one theory that he just went mad and, uh, and uh, started doing some pretty strange and, and uh, bizarre things. Uh, there's another theory that his mistress, Saisonia, gave him a love potion, which drove him crazy, and that that was the cause of his madness. Um, in either case, uh, Camus has used that character as the basis for this play. Now, it's not simply a study of a man who goes mad. It's, uh, it's a lot more than that. Camus uses it to, to say a lot, a lot of other interesting things about society and about people and people's reaction, how people deal with this man and, and uh, the corruption of power, total power. Uh, what it means for one man uh, to have the kind of power that Caligula did uh, or does in the play and, and how that affects the people around him and how they respond to it. Uh, he deals with a lot of questions, and, mm -hmm. and most of them are questions that apply to our contemporary times. Yeah, as usual, and the, the thing that fascinates me about his writing is what you just brought up about dealing with the things that are, are not usually not usually thought of to be dealt with by uh, quote-unquote existentialists. One is honesty, mm -hmm. especially in this play. Well, what is, uh, how is this dealt with? How, is, how does Caligula deal with the question well, of honesty? Well, the idea that, uh, that uh, uh, Caligula uh, works with in the play is that, uh, that there is a lot of deception in life. And, of course, the reason for this is that he's gone through a, a very uh, unfortunate, unhappy experience where somebody that he loved very much has died, and that starts him wondering about the about the uh, the question of what life is as as compared to what life should be. He wants life to be something other than what it is. He feels that there's a cruelty in life, and that uh, and as, as he says in the beginning of the play, he says this world is very unsatisfactory because men die and they're not happy, and he wants to put a stop to that. So in his madness, he tries, or, uh, he tries to create uh, a world where only the truth exists and where the truth is followed through to its, to its utmost logical conclusion, and that leads him into some very severe and interesting problems. And uh, he finds out in the end, finally, that by pursuing only the pure truth, he's lost his soul. He hasn't, he's, he's, uh, he's given up feelings. He's ruled out feelings in his life. And uh, in doing that, he's lost touch with himself as a human being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. <clears throat> okay, let me get you some coffee. All right. Usually a little different. I'll tell you about it later. Okay, number two. Number two. Have you ever done any plays like this one exactly? Well, yes, I have. Uh, I guess I've done two other plays that... that dealt uh, somewhat with this kind of thinking or this kind of style of, of character or whatever. The first was, um, was a play called Death Watch, which I did in 1960, and then I did the movie in 1964. It was written by Jean Genet, who was a contemporary of, of uh, Camus and uh, uh, was one of the existentialist thinkers in France at that time. Uh, Camus and Sartre and Gide and Genet were the, were the leaders of that kind of movement, that kind of writing and that kind of thinking. And uh, Genet wrote several plays. Uh, he wrote a play called The Balcony, which became a film that I was in uh, with uh, Peter Falk and Shelley Winters. And uh, he wrote a play called The Blacks, uh, 
uh, and another one called The Screens that I recall, and, and this play that I mentioned called Death Watch, which I did with, uh, with Vic Morrow and Paul Mazursky in, in Los Angeles, and then we made the film in 1964. That was, that was also a study in values. Uh, the, the play took place in a prison and in a prison cell, three characters in a prison cell, but it was really not about prisons or prisoners. It was about, it was about an inversion of values. And the idea was kind of interesting because Genet took the approach that in a prison, for example, uh, the, the values are inverted in the prison system because in prison, the most important prisoner is a man who's committed the most horrible crime, mm -hmm. uh, which is true. I've right. visited prisons and talked yeah. to prisoners, and when, when they tell you their private little stories, they'll try to build up their crimes to you to make them sound more important. A petty thief who's in prison doesn't really want to remain a petty thief. He would really rather be a, uh, considered a, a burglar or, or, a, or a, you know, a... a anything but a petty thief. Uh, and unfortunately, those values do get twisted in that society. So Genet used that idea to show what happens in, in a society where the, where the, the values become inverted. You know, in, in, a, in a prison, the murderer is the top man, the man who's murdered several people, and people go around talking about him and say, he, he killed a lot of people, that man. You know, the prisoners will point him out to you like he's the king, he's a very important man because he did a lot of killing, which is really sad that that should happen in a prison society where you're supposed to be rehabilitating rather than giving value to people who do horrible things. Then I did a, uh, I did a play about uh, two years ago called The Man in the Glass Booth. Now, there's been a film made of that with uh, Maximilian Schell, and I think it's opening here in Austin sometime later this month mm -hmm. uh, on that American film theater um, series. Now, that play is about a man, too, who, uh, whose values become terribly inverted and, and is into a, a rather... Uh, uh, strange and bizarre emotional and psychological trip. Uh, so those those two were similar in style, at least in their thinking to what to what Caligula is all about. Yeah, it sounds an awful lot like uh, I I think it was Sartre who did uh, No Exit. It sounds like the same kind of thing that was in No Exit. Yes, it's a study of of what happens when you when you create inverted values in a closed situation. The situation in, Cali in Caligula is closed in the sense that Caligula has control of this society. In No Exit, uh, he has three people in a room together, and they can't escape from each other, and they must deal with each other and what happens to their values. And in, in Death Watch, the same thing, uh, same construction. It was a prison cell in that case with three prisoners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the character of uh, Caligula, a madman, is it difficult to get in? Well, I don't consider myself a madman, so I have to work at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's my job. That's what I'm supposed to know how to do, mm -hmm. to get inside a character and make people believe that I am that character. And I've, I've had people come to me after performances of this play and say that I frighten them and they're afraid to be standing there talking to me, so I guess it's working. Yeah, know? I've heard that too. A lot of people talk. Something else that I've heard about, uh, and I guess everybody who's listening to the show this morning has heard about, is... Uh, is the Mr. Spock of, of Star Trek and the fact that Star Trek is making a, a gigantic comeback. It's all, uh, it's all reruns, but yet people are still watching every day at 4 o'clock in front of their TV. Does that surprise you? Well, it does. Uh, it, it does surprise me. I, didn't, uh, I certainly didn't expect this much interest this long uh, over so many years. You know, it's been seven years since we last made an episode of Star Trek. And uh, it's interesting that you say Star Trek is making a comeback. Actually, I don't think it ever really left. It's been kind of yeah. sitting there you're right. alive all the time. And, and rather than a comeback, I would say that there's a, a tremendous new burst of interest in the show. But it never really went away. Uh, wherever, uh, in whatever cities 
uh, it's been off the air, uh, the audiences have been sitting waiting for it to come back on and, and demanding in many cases of the local stations that they put it back on the air. Now, uh, we didn't know, we had no way of knowing when we were making the show that it would have this, this kind of uh, afterlife or longevity. I'm mm-hmm. very surprised. I'm very pleased by it. I think the show holds up very well. A question's got to be why, if the if the ratings are obviously there because people are asking for it, why isn't it on the air on uh, a weekly series? You mean as uh, new shows? Right. Well, there is there has been conversation about that as a possibility for a long time, and now what what seems to have happened is that the studio P- uh, Paramount Studios owns the rights. Uh, the last I've heard, and this is as recent as five or six days ago, Gene Roddenberry, who was the producer creative of the, of the series, has now made a deal with Paramount Studios. To uh, to make a movie, to make a Star Trek movie for theatrical release sometime later this year. Now it's uh, there is no firm contract on the movie. I understand he has a contract now to write a script, and if the script is acceptable to the studio and if they feel that the timing is still right and they're still interested when the script is done, then theoretically they'll go ahead and make a, a major movie out of it, like a sizable budget, three or four million dollar movie. Mm-hmm. Did you like doing that? I liked it very much. It was very, very hard work, but uh, it was very challenging work to play that character and to do those stories, and, and it was very imaginative work, so I was very much involved in it. When, when I'm involved in what I'm doing, I'm happy. Yeah. Was it, was it difficult because it was every week, week after week with a new yeah, show? Yeah, well, that's true with any series, but particularly on that show, we were trying to do an awful lot in an hour, uh, a, lo- a lot of production, a lot of special effects, uh, a lot of very uh, intricate and involved storytelling photographically. So it was a very difficult show to shoot, and uh, we uh, our work schedule was very similar to any other television series, but uh, but it was quite intense, and uh, it was a 12-hour day, five days a week for three years. Hmm. The question is, what happened to all these people? What happened to uh, William Shatner? What's he doing now? Well, he's doing uh, more or less what I'm doing. He's doing a lot of theater and uh, an occasional TV show. So in that sense, we're doing pretty much the same thing. He's also... Uh, uh, doing some commercials and, and keeping very busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, DeForest Kelly has had a very quiet career since Star Trek. I think, I think perhaps he's he's the one that was most affected by the uh, by the typecasting thing the, or the association with Star Trek. Uh, he was McCoy, right? Doctor McCoy. Right. Yeah. In my case, uh, it's created an awful lot of work for me, and uh, mostly uh, in theater with an occasional TV show. Uh, a couple of movies, and I do a lot of uh, college lecture appearances. I've, I've been appearing at colleges all around the country. I'll do probably 35 or 40 college lecture appearances this year. And I'm writing. I've got two books out, and, and uh, so I'm keeping very busy. Nichelle Nichols uh, has been doing some nightclub work. She sings, and she has a nightclub act, and she's been doing some of that. And uh, Walter Koenig, who played... She, she, of course, was Lieutenant Uhura. Walter Koenig, who played uh, uh, Chekhov, has been writing lately. And uh, I think he's going to have a successful writing career. George Takei, who played Sulu, has been doing some acting work occasionally. He's very political. He ran for the Los Angeles mm-hmm. City Council last year and almost made it. Yeah, I heard, I heard they had to take the uh, Star Trek series off the air for a while. That's right. There's that thing about <laughs> equal time. And the station uh, was told that if they ran the, the Star Trek shows while he was campaigning for the Los Angeles City Council, they'd have to give equal time to the other candidates. Mm-hmm. So they took the show off the air temporarily. Yeah. Does anybody ever ask you what happened to your ears? <laughs> Now, why would anybody ask me a I question can't understand. like that? I can't understand why anybody would ask that. Those kind of things. It's uh, probably difficult to work in a, uh, as a professional actor going through various characters and someone comes up and says, uh, 
gee, sir, what happened to your ears? What do you say to somebody like that? I tell them I sent them out to be sharpened. Yeah. <laughs> Probably a pretty good answer to kind of a weird question. You also went through the impossible, uh, the impossible task, a mission impossible. Mm -hmm. Did you have fun doing that? Yes, that was a much easier show for me to do. I did two years of that, and it was much easier physically. It wasn't as demanding because the show was more evenly split amongst all of the characters. There were times when they would be shooting sequences that, that um, Peter Graves was doing or, or that um, Greg Morris was doing or whoever else was on the show at the time. Uh, Leslie Warren was with us for a year. And during those times, I wouldn't have to be there, so I'd occasionally have a day off or a half day off, and I could, I could catch up on, my, on myself. I wasn't as intensely involved in every scene as I was in Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Let's take another break. We'll be back in just a minute. Okay, number three. If you had your druthers, uh, what would you druther do? Uh, write, be on television, do plays, or what? I think probably at this point, this you know that changes in my life. I'm sure it changes in other people's lives as well. Probably at this point, uh, I would do an occasional play and do a lot of photography. I would really enjoy being. Uh, having much more time to work on my photography. It's, it's, a, it's an important part of my life. I like to express myself through pictures. And uh, I'd like to have more time to, to be doing more of that. But um, right now, it just kind of fits in when I have the time. And, I, and I, the, the books that I've published so far, the two books, uh, the photographs in those books are my own. And uh, I wish I had more time to devote to that. Mm-hmm. Do you miss the kind of uh, thing that you have in Caligula going, the, the audience reaction? Do you miss that when you're doing uh, television or movies? Well, you get used to that. I, I don't really believe that when you're doing television or movies that there is no audience. Uh, there is an audience, and that audience is the crew. And they're a tough audience because they've seen it all. I'm talking about the camera crew, the lighting crew, the sound men, uh, the carpenters, the electricians who are on the set. There'll be 40 or 50 people on the set when you're shooting a scene. And uh, they do their job and get everything ready for you. And then uh, when it's time to play the scene, the cameramen are working, of course, shooting the picture, and, and the sound men are working. But there'll be 30 or 40 others who are standing there watching and waiting for you to finish so they can go to work getting this, the next scene ready. And to me, they are an audience. And uh, as I say, they're tough because they've seen it all. They've seen all the great stars and all the great actors and actresses. And uh, they've seen all the great material. They've been there, many of those guys, for 30, 40 years, doing it with, from Chaplin on up. Mm -hmm. And if you're any good and they let you know it, then you feel that, that you've really accomplished something. And if you're bad, they'll let you know it, too. And say, ah, oh, sure, Leonard, what are you going to do next for a job? You know, what are you going to do when you get through acting? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, they can be tough. <laughs> and I appreciate that because it's a very real relationship. They're, they're not going to kid you. Yeah. And if they, if they uh, and you can sense, even if they don't say anything, you can sense if they're involved and if they care. Uh, in a scene that you're playing. So I believe that there always is an audience. Yes, it's nice. They can't, they can't respond like an audience in a theater can. They can't laugh or talk or whatever or, or applaud or anything. Or sometimes they will applaud at the end of a scene if they really feel that strongly about it when the, after the camera has stopped rolling. Uh, you don't get the immediate spontaneous, spontaneous response that you get in the theater. So it is different. It's a different kind of response. But I can feel their response 
uh, even when they're silent. I can, I've gotten to the point where I can tell whether they're really, really interested and involved in what you're doing or whether they're just waiting for you to get finished so they can go back to work. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you can too. What about the, uh, what about the on stage with other actors or actresses? Uh, do you have situations you can recall where telephones wouldn't ring or scenes would fall apart, uh, side oh, yeah. flaps would well, fall in? Well, that happens uh, in the theater. Uh, the theater is a live and happening thing. And once, uh, once the curtain goes up at 8 o'clock or 8.30, whatever, the house lights go down, time is rolling. and You can't stop it. And there are going to be things happen. There are gonna be, there's going to be a plane flyover, and maybe uh, you have to stop or whatever and wait. I've, I've played theaters that were right in, in flight paths, and I mean, you, you get that plane that sounds like it's coming into the theater. You've got to deal with that. I've had uh, uh, kids start crying or, or uh, in a theater or, and have to be taken out or, or uh, various things that happen. Sometimes you say a, a cue goes bad and a light doesn't come on when it's supposed to or you, you're supposed to fire a gun and it doesn't shoot and, you know, that kind of thing. You deal with it. Uh, <laughs> If you're involved in what you're doing, if you know what you're doing, you have control of the situation. If you're professional enough and have been there enough times, you deal with it. There are ways of, of working your way through it. I've also played summer theaters uh, under tents. There are still some very large tent theaters around that are very successful. You know, they seat 1,500 to 2,000 people. There's one in, in uh, Milwaukee that's a very successful house. And they, they have the money and could very easily put up a permanent structure, but I think the people of the city really enjoy going to that tent every summer to see the, mu the musicals that they do there. And I've played there in the middle of a storm where you'd have to have stopped the show because there's a thunderstorm coming through and the rain hitting that canvas, you're inside a drum. You, know, <laughs> you can't, you can't uh, I mean, standing on stage, you can't even hear the other actor talk. You can see his lips moving, but it's so noisy. Mm -hmm. You have to stop the play and, and start again. And that's okay. The audience understands that and they're used to that. And, and uh, the actor gets used to it too. You deal with those things. Yeah, I, I, Alan Seuss was through here a few months ago and was telling a story about a time when he was supposed to uh, supposed to kill the other person across mm -hmm. the table. He was going to uh, had a gun underneath the table, but mm -hmm. someone had forgotten to put the gun in. <laughs> and so he, all he has is this table and the gun that's not there. It's backstage somewhere, and he's got uh, butter and toast on the table. And so he realized he had no gun, and he decided to say, well, if you don't do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to poison you with this poison <laughs> butter. So he, so he jumps into it's it. It's fast thinking. Yeah, that is fast thinking. I, d does that kind of thing, has it ever happened to you? Like in this play, for example, has anything like that happened? No, no, so far. <laughs> I wish I could knock wood here someplace. Here it is. We've had, uh, we've had no problems like that. I don't expect any. Uh, we've got a pretty good crew over there at St. Edwards, and, and uh, they know what they're doing. They know what they're supposed to do. We don't have any guns in the play. But as a matter of fact, we do have a bottle of poison in the play, <laughs> and it's always there when it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Good that the poison is there when you need it. Let's, let's take another break. We'll be back right after this. <clears throat> Jackie Coogan was in town also, and I think he was at St. Edward's not too long ago and uh, was kind enough to visit with us one morning. We started talking about uh, the subject of actors not having any place to do or anything to do, like everybody else, hard to pay the bills if you can't work. Uh, is, it, uh, is it a depression situation in the, in the profession of acting now? Well, it's, uh, it is, yes, and uh, it's not unusual for actors to be out of work. Um, the, uh, the economy right now is, is not good really for anybody. I don't know anybody who's benefiting by the economic situation right now. Unemployment, as we know, is high. Uh, but for actors, that's uh, that's fairly typical. The um, the percentage of of uh, union members who are working at any given time is very small. 
So I don't know that there's anything really special about the present situation. Uh, actually, motion picture business right now is not bad, and in, in fact, is quite good. So there's more motion picture production being done in Los Angeles than there has been in the past. And uh, and I wonder if that isn't because um, because times are kind of tough and people do want more entertainment. Uh, mm -hmm. In the in the, the big depression of the 1930s, motion pictures did very very well. People went out to see movies regularly to get away from their troubles to escape. Of course, motion pictures were very cheap at that time. You could see a movie for a nickel or a dime or whatever it was. I can remember when I was a kid paying a dime on Saturday afternoon and getting a free a free candy bar along with a movie. Nowadays, it's three or three and a half or four dollars, which is pretty stiff. But still, motion picture, uh, motion picture business is good. And uh, uh, in that sense, I guess uh, maybe it tells us something about when times are bad, people want more entertainment. Mm -hmm. Is the answer some kind, of, uh, some kind of stronger union for the actors, or, or what is Well, it? the major problem, uh, I think, is, is, is not a matter of a stronger union. The union is, is strong enough. The major problem is that, that there, has, there is so much uh, rerun material on television. And actors do not get paid indefinitely on reruns, as most people think. Uh, for example, on Star Trek, although it's still running all over the country, I don't get a dime out of it. Uh, you get paid through a certain number of runs, and you're all through. And my residuals um, on Star Trek have run out a long time ago. So I don't get any money out of that. Uh, and what the union is trying to do now is to uh, force a situation where, where the networks and the studios will produce more new product, which would be good for everybody, it would be good for the audiences as well as actors, obviously. Uh, the more new product there is, the more jobs there are, and the more people will get to see new shows and not be forced to watch reruns if they don't want to. Right now, I think something like 52 or 53 percent of the programming on television is something that's been on before. It's a rerun. And that's, uh, that's a big chunk. There was a time, you know, when, we, when, when I first started working in television, in the early 50s, you did uh, a season of, of TV shows with 39 shows. And then for 13 weeks, they would pick 13 of those 39 shows and rerun those, and then right back into new shows. So the ratio was three to one, three, three new shows for every rerun. Now it's, uh, it's the other way around. Now there are more reruns than there are, than there are uh, new shows being produced. Yeah, the prime time rule that the FCC is playing with from year to year about mm -hmm. the whatever it is, the, the first hour of the evening have decided to uh, give that to the local, local programming. And yeah. it turns out being Price is Right or uh, You Make a Deal or something. Right. It's, uh, I don't think that prime time thing has done what it's supposed to do. The, the concept was that they would, it would create more local grassroots programming that would, be, that would have to do with the community and so forth. And it certainly hasn't done that. And I think the fault there lies with the, uh, with the local station managers who, uh, who find it too expensive or too demanding or, or uh, whatever to to really be creative in that hour, so they pick up the cheapest game show they can and stick it into that slot. Mm -hmm. Have you ever done anything uh, aside uh, in another media like radio? Have you ever done any radio drama? I used to work uh, some radio material a long, long time ago uh, when I was a teenager. I was doing some some local radio work in Boston, and uh, I have done an occasional radio drama through the years. In fact, uh, what I started out to do when I was about fifteen or sixteen, I thought I really wanted to be a radio announcer. Mm -hmm. And I just uh, somehow drifted through radio drama into theatrical work. Uh, and I'm, I'm still very much interested in radio. I love the idea that radio drama seems to be making a comeback. I understand you're running The Shadow here mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and um, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I think that's great. Uh, 
and I'm, I'm very interested in it. Uh, there isn't enough of a market now to make it worthwhile spending a lot of time for me doing it, but I, but I do enjoy it. Now, I just had an offer, uh, which uh, I've accepted, to, do, to record uh, some of Ray Bradbury's uh, short stories for Cademan Records, and I'll be doing that in New York sometime in the next uh, five or six weeks. That's terrific. When two those, albums of short stories. Uh, oh, you're just going to be doing the telling I'm, the stories. I'm doing two uh, two stories from the Illustrated Man and two stories from the Martian Chronicles, for the first two albums, and then there's more that they want me to record that we'll talk about later. Yeah, that's terrific. That's RCA product. When will that be out? I think uh, in the fall, uh, or maybe maybe this spring. It might be pretty soon. Uh, I'm uh, I'm trying to set a recording date uh, within the next three weeks or so in New York for the first album, which I think they want to release this spring. Yeah. Do you like Bradbury's writing? I love it, sure. Bradbury's one of the great science fiction writers of all time. Yeah. So it's really strange how people look back on uh, science fiction of some years back, and I, I have a feeling that people are going to be doing that with Star Trek to some degree, looking back on these the uh, television science fiction of this day and say, boy, that was very close. Those, those science fiction writers were really close to what's actually going to happen. Well, this is one of the major things that I talk about on my college lecture uh, dates. Uh, we are living in a science fiction age. We're in a time now where ideas that, that were thought of as science fiction or science fantasy 20 or 30 years ago are part of our lives today. Um, I remember when I was a little kid, uh, and we had only radio, and there was no television, and uh, we had one of those big um, console model radios in our house. It was mm -hmm. about four or five feet high, and it was a big uh, dome-top thing. And, and I remember my mother saying to me one day, someday we'll be able to open, open up a set like that and you'll see the people who are talking. And I took that very literally. I thought she meant that someday we were going to find a way of opening up that radio, mm -hmm. you see, and, and there'd be little people inside there that were making those voices. And I kept mm -hmm. watching for the day that my dad would come <laughs> home and open up the radio. <laughs> right. right. But, of course, uh, that was a fantasy. It was a science fiction idea. Uh, and now we, we take it for granted. And, and not just that, obviously. Uh, we've, we've been to the moon and had men walking around on another planet. Uh, we've come a long way in the last 20, 30 years in a lot of scientific areas, and we are living in, in the fulfillment of some of those scientific prophecies or some of those science fiction prophecies that were written about 20 or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Anything from Star Trek that comes to mind that, uh, that particularly stands out as something you thought was effectively done? Well, the thing that seems to have captured so many people's imagination is that idea of, of beaming people from one place to another beaming people down to a planet from the ship or beaming them back up onto the ship. That was created, the idea was created out of a necessity because it was too expensive, physically too difficult, to show the ship landing or taking off from a planet each week. So it was decided that the simplest thing to do was never have the ship land, mm -hmm. have it stay in space orbiting around a planet and just and have the people land, have landing parties go down or come back up. And they devised that way of doing that, that beaming process where the people would get into a transporter which is energized and the people disappear and then appear on the planet or the other way around coming back onto the ship. And that seems to be the thing, one of the things that's really captured people's imaginations. I suspect someday scientists will be able to do that. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of, of uh, changing matter to energy and beaming that energy someplace else uh, and then reconverting it to matter. Now, in a, in a sense, we do that in television, don't we? We do it with radio. We, we change this sound to a signal which goes out through the air and becomes a sound again someplace else. With television, we take a picture in, in a room or in a studio someplace and change it from a picture to, to energy, 
pure energy and send it someplace else and then reconvert it to a picture. So we're already really doing that in mm -hmm. a sense. Not so far-fetched. That's right. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. You will be at uh, St. Edward's till when? We close on March 23rd. That's a week from Sunday. And we have uh, performances every night except Monday. We have two on Saturday and Sunday. There's a matinee on Saturday and Sunday and an evening performance on Saturday and Sunday. And I might say for anybody who's interested to, in seeing the show, move now because their tickets are almost gone mm -hmm. for the run. And there's a very good reason for that. You've been listening to uh, one of the major reasons for this past hour. Leonard, it's been a pleasure having you with us. Let, me, uh, let me put in one more plug All here. Right. I'm going to be at Congress Avenue Booksellers ah. uh, next Wednesday noon, signing my, uh, my books of poetry there. So if anybody is in the downtown area next Wednesday noon, I'd like to see them there. They are beauties. I was looking over Thank some you. yesterday. Thank you. Thank you again.